Before Dan comes up for the preaching of God's word, I'm going to invite Pamela to read the scripture passage for today's sermon. Pamela. Our reading today is from Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 38. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that a son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his, for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. Well, welcome to uh, yet another fun Sunday at Grace Toronto. We apologize for the sound issues um, that have been plaguing us. Uh, apparently, um, we've just had certain things get plugged and unplugged uh, as we've been doing renovations, and that was just a battery issue. I think we're good. Well, wherever you are in your journey of faith, thank you for hanging in with us. Wherever you are in your journey of life, we're glad that you are here. Two questions have been posed to us by this book of Mark that we are looking at this Uh, this series. And the two questions are, and they frame his book, who is Jesus and what does it mean to follow him? No matter where you are in your journey of faith, these two questions are always confronting us. And as we continue the series, we see that we've come to a climactic moment in the book of Mark, the end of chapter 8. This forms the climactic middle of the way Mark has structured his gospel. Before this, Jesus is wandering around teaching and preaching and healing uh, all around Israel. After this, he will turn in a very focused way toward Jerusalem, his suffering and death on a cross there. And here Mark gives us, in the middle of the book, this incredible summarizing answer to these two questions. Who is Jesus and what does it mean to follow him? And we're going to look at these two right now. First of all, who is Jesus? Now, if you uh, have been following with us and you are investigating Christianity, this part will probably be most relevant to you. But for all of us, this will be a sobering and searching question. Because Jesus begins this passage by asking his disciples, who do people say I am? And the disciples answer with three options that they've heard from the general culture. Uh, You are John the Baptist. Some think you're Elijah. Not really Elijah, but an old Testament promise that someone like Elijah is going to come, or you're a prophet. Now, these three things are distinguishable, but they have this in common. Each of these answers thinks Jesus is someone 
with a special empowerment or a teaching or insight from God to teach people and to instruct them and to illuminate them. But all three answers don't think Jesus is who he is revealing himself to actually be. The promised Messiah of Israel and the promised Savior of the world, of you and me. And I want to pause here for a moment and say that this attitude toward Jesus that we're seeing reflected in the culture is not that different from what you and I are experiencing now. Most people here now think Jesus is a wise man. They think he's a teacher. They think he's maybe even has some special spiritual insight. But we're skeptical that Jesus can be more than that. And we need to see that we are now what they were then. Skeptical. Many of these people who they're they're talking about had seen Jesus do miracles. They'd seen Jesus feed 5,000 people. Some had seen Jesus heal people of diseases, even raise people from the dead. And yet their human skepticism was such that this one or two miracles they may have seen was not enough to convince them that he was anything more than some maybe special human being. That was their dominant view then. It is our dominant view now. So I want to say now to those of us who are skeptical, Mark, the author of this book, gets you. I get you. We get you. It's normal to think that someone who claims to be God may need to be institutionalized, may need to have mental health issues examined. It takes extraordinary evidence to overcome our natural skepticism about these kinds of claims. So we get you. But look at the response of Peter speaking for the disciples. They've been with Jesus every day. They've seen every single miracle that he's done. They've heard every word that he's taught. And the accumulated evidence of that has overcome their natural skepticism. And so they say, you are the Christ. By which they mean you are God's anointed Messiah. Come at the end of the ages to restore Israel and to reign righteously. That's the first part of the answer of the question. He is the Christ. Who is Jesus? He is the Christ. But then Jesus looks them in the eye and adds something to that that they don't expect, not even those who believe in him as the Christ. He says, I'm the Christ who's going to the cross. And it is here in describing the fullness of who he is that Jesus makes even mature Christians struggle. In Mark 8, 31, it says, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And Peter rebukes him. (laughs) Peter takes him aside, says no. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebukes Peter in front of them and says, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your minds on the things of God but on the things of men. Jesus here in describing the work that he has come to do, to go to the cross, to suffer and to die, is actually revealing more deeply who he actually is. I must come, I must be rejected, I must be killed, and I must rise again. That's what he's saying. He's saying my identity is indelibly, unchangeably, inextricably tied up with this act of suffering and death. He's saying to his Jewish followers, and he's saying to you and me, to acknowledge me as the Christ, the Messiah who's come for you, must be tied with acknowledging me as the Christ who goes to the cross. 
because I'm coming to restore more than you think I am. I'm coming to save you from more than you think I am. I didn't come to save you from the political oppression of Rome. I didn't come to restore our temporal, political, and cultural fortunes as a nation. I came to suffer and I came to die. My kingdom will be advanced not through political or military victory, but through shame, rejection, and death. I will achieve victory through humiliation and weakness. I will win the victory by spreading my arms wide and allowing Roman soldiers to nail me to a cross. And how do the disciples respond? Through Peter they say, no. This is offensive to them. It's repellent to them. And for most of us we have to admit we don't like it much either. Who wants to follow a rejected and hated religious leader? Who wants to follow someone who will be scorned and laughed at? who will be derided and sneered at. Peter, representing the disciples then and you and me now, struggles with that. Why? Because we who follow Jesus, just like Peter, we want a respectable faith. We want a respected leader. We want to be respected, not rejected, and we want that for Jesus. We crave respect. We crave comfort. We crave the easy need road, excuse me, and the applause of our peers and our culture. We want to ride down the soft, easy current of the river of our life and end up in the harbor of the arms of God. We want both what this world can give and what God through Jesus promises in the next. And Jesus seeing in Peter that inclination, that settled mindset, rebukes him in front of all of them and says, get behind me. What does it mean to get behind me? In our minds, it's something disdainful like shush. But actually in their minds, because in that culture, people who followed a rabbi and followed his teachings and claimed to be disciples would literally follow him on the road, it means get back to listening to me, obeying me, and following me, aligning to me. Jesus is not rejecting Peter. He's disciplining him. He's correcting him. He's saying you've developed an attitude that's antithetical to and directly opposed to my mission. He says you are setting your minds on the things of men. The Greek word here means a deliberate planning from a set mindset. You are developing a settled, deliberate attitude from which this response comes. You are rejecting my whole mission. And what is that mission? It's to die for you and me. It's not just to be a Jewish royal Messiah who comes and frees them from political oppression. It's to take you and me in the slavery we now are struggling with to sin, to our own pride, and to break its guilt and its power over us. He came to deliver you and me from the moral corruption in our hearts, from the just judgment of God to our selfishness. Jesus is pointing out, for the rest of history, he will be seen this way. He will be seen as a rejected, foolish choice of a religious leader. And to follow Jesus is to come to terms with that reality. It will not be comfortable. It will not be convenient. It will be costly because he will not be a respected ruler, but a rejected, deluded person who claimed to be God.
No. Why is this so difficult? Because of our hearts. And that's why Jesus comes to a second point. He brings other people in to what he wants to tell the disciples because he sees this struggle in them. And he says, what does it mean to follow me? To follow the Christ on the cross is to follow Christ to the cross. And starting in verse 34, he says, if anyone will come after me, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. There it is. For whoever would save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for my sake and the gospels will save it. What does it profit someone to gain the whole world and to lose your soul? These words don't actually need much explanation. A child understands what I just said. Deny yourself. Take all your desires, all your dreams, all your agendas for yourself, all your goals. Let them fill your hands. Name them. Your hand has clasped them tightly. You have organized your life around them. You have organized your heart around them. And Jesus says, open that hand. Let it all go. Well, then what do I fill my hand and my heart with? He says, with my cross. Actually yours. Take up your cross and follow me. Now to take up your cross in those days meant humiliation. It meant shame and rejection. You see, people who were convicted in in Israel to crucifying, to being killed by crucifixion, they would have to take part of the cross that they were nailed to, the upper bar, and they would have to actually drag it, usually weighed about 90 to 100 pounds. They'd have to drag it or carry it, if they could, to the place where they were going to be crucified. It was part of the humiliation and rejection. You carried your own cross. And oftentimes, people would come around because it was a bit of a spectacle, and they would watch you silently or sneer at you or spit at you because with the Roman guards and authorities there, that was the, the kind of attitude that you could express. And so to carry your cross is to endure the public identification is someone to be rejected. And so now you see what Jesus is saying. I bore that shame. I walked that walk. Now you follow me. You bear the shame. Do you want my cleansing? Then carry that cross. Do you want my forgiveness? Then follow me on that road. You don't just... Live a life of denying yourself. You live a life of public identification with a rejected, crucified Savior. And by the way, that is the only way to follow me. It's the way of the open hand. It's the way of the carried cross. All those things you're holding on to, all those things you hold dear, and they're usually good things. All of those things that you've stored up in your heart and you said, these will define me. These will make me feel nourished. You have to be willing to let them go. To the rich young ruler who loved his wealth, Jesus said, you've got to sell it all. That's your cross, rich young ruler. To someone like myself who loved my reputation, you've got to give that up. To someone else who loves comfort, you've got to give that up. That's your cross to give up. And then Jesus tells us why it is so. He says, because this life is not all there is. It isn't. You were made to live life after death. And how you live then is eternal. You have a soul that is eternal. 
That soul is priceless. That soul is the essence of you. And you will meet God. And if you choose the fleeting pleasures of this world for the 80 or 90 plus years that you may live, you choose that over eternal communion with God, if you forfeit eternal life with God for these 80 or 90 years, if you exchange your soul for those paltry decades of power and pleasure and comfort, then you are to be pitied, Jesus says, above all things. You have made the wrong choice. You have valued the wrong thing. So Jesus asks the question, are you ashamed of me? Because he says, if you are ashamed of me, on the day that you appear before God and your soul is evaluated and you are weighed in the balance, I will be ashamed of you. And you will have to bear the weight of your own pride and your own sin and God's just judgment on that. So Jesus asked that question. Do you want to put down that cross and slip back into the crowd where it's comfortable and anonymous? Then Jesus says, when you put that cross down, leave your soul behind because that's the choice. You cannot have one without the other. Do you find these words hard? They're not my words. They're his words. They're his words to me and to you. Now there are three types of people who are listening to me right now. I want to speak specifically to the three types of people that, there are many types of course, but I want to put three categories to the many types. Firstly, if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, you're curious about Christianity I want to say Jesus tells you this is what it means to follow me. It's to believe in a Christ who goes to a cross. And it's to follow that Christ with your cross. He's God himself. He's not just some moral teacher. He didn't just come to enlighten us with some deep penetrating spiritual insights. He came to die for you. And he needed to. Because your sin is that corrupting, that staining, and that alienating. Your sins have separated you from a holy God. You need him to go to the cross for you. You need that kind of a Christ. Jesus wants you to fully understand what's at stake here. Eternal life is at stake with God. Your sins will keep you from eternal life and eternal joy with him unless you take the gift of Christ on the cross. But the only way you can take that is to empty your hand of all the things that you have made your functional gods, the things that you think will define you. You've got to empty your hands of those to take the gift of eternal life. Now, for those of us who are Christians, there are two categories of Christians I want to talk to. Firstly, there are the Peter types. We want Jesus, we want his grace, we want his forgiveness. We want to sacrifice, but we don't want the rejection, the shame, and the humiliation that comes with being a Christian. We like our comfort. We'd like to follow Jesus without taking up the cross. We want to slip into the crowd, but somehow keep our soul. In in an interview on Spotify, Tim Keller, who's 70 years old, best-selling author, pastor, preacher, one of my personal mentors, said he and his wife, at 70 years old, facing probably fatal pancreatic cancer right now. They did an inventory of the things that were really nourishing them. And they found out this, that that Kathy was nourished by going to places on vacation. 
where she and Tim could rest. And she had Tim's full attention because he wasn't distracted by work. Tim found the things that really nourished him were the accomplishments that he'd had in his ministry. And he said of this, very interesting, despite devoting all of their lives to ministry, he said, we realized we still had tried to make a heaven out of this earth, just in religious ways. You see, but the problem is we always come back from those vacations. And the problem is those ministry accomplishments are always replaced by new goals. He says, it took cancer to make us realize we're trying to make a heaven out of this earth and we need to stop. How about you? Are you trying too much to take the good things of this world and make them a heaven out of this earth? Are you too much like Peter? I know I am. If so, get back behind Jesus. Get back to following him. Repent. List out the things that you really nourish, the things that fill your hand as you close your hand around it. List them out. Put them on a piece of paper this week, today, And then say to Jesus, I admit, I want to follow you and I want these things. And then open the hand and say, but I give them to you. And then go to somebody to hold you accountable. To say, I've given these things, help me. And then go in prayer to the spirit of Jesus himself who lives in you and say, help me. To have the power to let these things go. I recognize they're good things, but I need you to help me let them go for the better thing. And that is to follow the Christ of the cross by filling my life with the cross he's given me. Take the list of those things that you've prayed for. Pray them this week that God will give you by his spirit the power. Now, how does God give you the power? I'm, I'm going to help answer that question by looking at the last category of people. People that I would call the discouraged or the afflicted types. You're trying to carry your cross, but it's gotten heavy and you're tired. You're feeling discouraged. You're feeling worldly polluted. You're feeling tempted all the time. And you feel guilty and ashamed about that. I want to give you two potential solutions. Firstly, ask yourself, is one of the reasons why I'm so discouraged the fact that I'm actually still carrying the guilt of my sin? You see, if you've come to Jesus, as Joe said, the condemnation of your sin has been paid for. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's none. It has been paid for at the cross. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. You who were, were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our sins. They're all gone. They're all paid for. Are you perhaps still carrying the guilt of your sin? The second thing that may be discouraging you, and this is the one I'm most prone to, are you discouraged because you're trying to follow Jesus in your own strength? You cannot. Jesus could not go to the cross in his own strength. Yes, he was God, and yes, he was fully human. But he, as a fully human man, could not go to the cross without the help of God's Spirit. Look at the Gospels. The Spirit of God empowered and helped and encouraged Jesus all the way through. And if Jesus needed the Spirit to accomplish the work he'd been called to, how about you and me? Yes, we do. How does the Spirit help give us the power. 
does he just come up to us and say, try harder? No. He comes up, and in the words that Joe felt and expressed to us this morning, he gives us the power by reminding us of the beauty of our adoption, the beauty of our sonship, our daughtership. Romans 8.15, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back again into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters, by which we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit empowers us by melting our hearts again. Several days ago, I was very, very discouraged, in good part because, uh, like Tim Keller, I find too much of my identity, too much of my self-nourishment from my accomplishments. And in the midst of a pretty dark time of discouragement, I read a few pages of a book by Thomas Goodwin, an old Puritan who wrote, The Heart of Christ in Heaven Toward Sinners. If you have not read that book, you must. It is, in my mind, the best book in the English language on the heart of Christ and one of the top three books on the person and work of Christ out there. Here are some words that Goodwin uses as he expounds this promise of Jesus from John chapter 14, verse 3. Jesus said, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself. And where I am, you may be also. And this is what Goodwin says as he reflects upon those words. Thomas Goodwin says, These last words betray Christ's entire affection. It is as if he had said, The truth is, I cannot live without you. I shall never be quiet till I have you where I am. That so we may never part again. Heaven shall not hold me, nor my Father's company, if I do not have you with me. My heart is so set upon you and if I, that if I have any glory, you shall have part of it. Jesus loves us so much. He came to be with us. He became one of us. He lived for us. He suffered for us. He died for us. He rose for us. He's preparing a place for us. He is longing to be reunited with us. He sent his spirit with us so that while he was gone from us, he would still be with us in a very real way so that we could be assured of his love and empowered to follow him. Why should I follow the Christ of the cross by taking up my cross? I take up my cross because he is the Christ who went to his cross for me. Let us pray. Father, I thank you that you are worthy of any sacrifice that we can make because of the blessedness of who you are and the joy it is of knowing you. Help us now. Help us now by the grace of your Holy Spirit to realize the depth of your love for us, past, present, and future, and to realize the worthiness of your person for us. And may we take stock and hold of the Christ of the cross. And may we let go of the things that we put too much stock in that we may follow you. Who are you? You are the Christ of the cross. Who are we? We are children of the Christ who take up our cross and follow you. 
Help us to do so by the power of your spirit. In Christ's name, amen. And we have a couple of quick questions and I'll begin to, by answering the first. Hey Dan, is get behind me directed at Peter or Satan or a bit of both? If it really means to get back on track, it seems he's not addressing Satan. Correct. He's using the word Satan. That's why I, I said it that way. To mean adversary. Satan can be a title of our great adversary, or it can mean in the idiomatic, in in the language of that day, it can just mean adversary. And in this case, he's kind of got a double entendre. Peter, you're being an adversary of me, and you are lining up with the adversary. So Peter, you get behind me. That's a great question. Good analysis. Why does it seem like taking up one's cross has higher stakes for some than others? Um... Why are some persecuted and killed and others like us get at best soft persecution? I don't know. I don't know why we are so privileged, but it, it is intriguing to me that those of us who are least affected by persecution objectively tend to be most sensitive to any kind of persecution subjectively. There's something about the objective reality of persecution that creates tougher, stronger in many ways, more godly Christians. We're a little thin-skinned and a little entitled by the amount of freedom we've had. I don't in any way want less freedom, but I do wish that we had some of that godly strength of those others. But I don't know, to be honest, your question. I think it's great. Does our salvation depend on a public identification as Christ's follower? Will he save us if we accept him privately but never publicly admit If you cannot publicly admit that you're a follower of Christ, I don't think you actually have privately received Christ. Because the spirit of Jesus enters into all those who actually receive him. And that spirit of Jesus motivates, empowers, gives words to, and gives opportunities for public witness about him. But I would say that these phrases here of Jesus should be taken very seriously. If you are ashamed of him, you don't know him. And he will be ashamed of you. He will deny that you know him on your day of judgment. And your, your sin will not be applied to the cross. It will not. But if you have received him, the spirit will move inside of you to speak outside of you to those whom you know about it. I remember wrestling because I prayed. When I was in university, I prayed to receive him, and then I said, but I'm not going to tell anybody about, about you. Not my fellow students, not my family, not my friends. I remember saying that. That was, um, that was in March of 1985. By the summer, I was starting to tell people. It took a few months, but the Spirit worked on me. And then by the spring of the next year, I had told everybody I'd even gone back to Montreal to my old friends at McGill and my old high school friends. I I went back in fear and trembling. But the spirit who works inside of you will work inside of you to proclaim outside through you the beauty and the joy of Jesus. Don't be discouraged. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. We praise you for your goodness and your grace. Help us now to follow you. By your spirit. Amen.